Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we explore a forgotten aspect of the Second World War. When we think back to the major Allied invasion of Europe, we think of Operation Husky and the invasion of Sicily, or perhaps Operation Avalanche in Solano and up the Amalfi Coast, or those failures at Anzio. Of course, we also remember the Normandy landings, D-Day, in June 1944. But there was another invasion that was meant to take place around the same time as the Normandy landings. It ended up taking place in August 44 and saw over 100,000 troops from across the US and across the French Empire land on the beaches of southern France. This was Operation Dragoon. And as expert American historian Cameron Zinzu tells us, it was the forgotten D-Day. Hi Cameron, thanks for coming on the pod. I know that you've been travelling a lot recently. Where are you in the world at the moment? Hey, yeah, thanks for having me, James. I'm currently in High Point, North Carolina. I was supposed to be in New Orleans this past weekend for an interview I was supposed to do at the National World War II Museum, but unfortunately, due to Hurricane Delta, that's been postponed a week. So I guess I'm cooped up in my apartment here in North Carolina for the time being. Well, it was actually from your articles that you've written for the National World War II Museum that I first came across your research, and it's safe to say that your work focuses on those forgotten aspects of the Second World War. And one of these that really stood out for me, that fascinated me, was Operation Dragoon, because I'd never heard of it before. So what was Operation Dragoon? Yeah, it's quite a doozy of an operation. It was briefly the Allied invasion of southern France that occurred in August 1944. It consisted of an American army and a French army. And it was the main French effort and participation that they conducted in liberating their own homeland. And it's interesting to me that it doesn't receive more acknowledgement or more coverage in the mainstream because 
it represents a feat of allied planning and execution. If there was a model amphibious operation with which to follow subsequent operations over water, it would definitely be Operation Dragoon. It went off without a hitch. And I think that might be part of the problem in coverage because, you know, we love a spicy, saucy story. The travails of Omaha Beach and the difficulty in getting out of hedgerow country in Normandy or the, the close calls that happened in Italy with the two amphibious operations there. And none of that drama is really present in Dragoon. It's a quick, swift Allied advance up the Rhone Valley that nearly cut off an entire German army group. And I guess that, that kind of harrowing close call might not be as exciting or as gripping as the ones we see in other operations in the European theater. Take us into a little bit more detail about this then, because on this show we like to have a good success story, so we're open to hearing all about it. What were the details of this operation? How many troops were involved? In what month did it take place? What else was going on in the war at this time? And how did this operation plan out? Sure. So, actually, if the combat itself wasn't necessarily the most thrilling to chronicle, the debate surrounding the operation certainly was. To the degree that Operation Dragoon receives extensive coverage in the historiography, it's mostly deals around the big personalities that contested whether or not the operation would go forward. But once the operation did commence, it consisted of the U.S. 6th Army Group under the command of General Jacob Devers. And under his command was the 7th Army led by General Alexander Sandy Patch and the 1st French Army, or French Army B, led by Jean de Tassigny. Interestingly, for the French army, almost all of the divisions that participated in the operation were French colonial troops who were participating because after the Battle of France, there were a million and a half French prisoners in German POW camps. France is fully occupied by Germany and Italy by November 1942. So there's a real dearth in regular French army fighting manpower. And to supplement for that, Charles de Gaulle and the Free French Forces looked to the Empire to make up that deficit. And so a lot of the French forces you see fighting in Italy are colonial troops and certainly fighting in southern France also. The American 7th Armies consisted of the 3rd, 36th, and 45th Infantry Divisions. They were seasoned divisions who had been participating in fighting and combat in Italy. And they were very experienced troops, as were the troops in France. The forces who opposed them was... Army Group G under Johannes Blaskowitz, and the primary army serving under him was the German 19th Army. The quality of that fighting force had been severely reduced because over the course of the Normandy campaign, German fighting strength in southern France had consistently been drawn away to reinforce the Normandy campaign to the degree to which there was only really one truly mobile fighting force in southern France, and that would be the 11th Panzer Division. And even then, that was slowly being chipped away at as holes were needing to be plugged in the Normandy campaign. About the time that the operation commences on August 15, 1944, it's right in the middle of the great breakout that had happened. So in late July 1944, Operation Cobra commences, and that's where General Patton makes his name for his famous dash across France just completely leaving people in the dark as he tries to advance as quickly as possible. And so by the first couple weeks, and certainly by the second week of August, the German front line in Normandy had broken and collapsed, and there's a general retreat to the east, and this kind of moment of the fillet's pocket, where 
The Allies were presented with this opportunity to capture huge numbers of German forces in north-central France is happening around this exact moment as Allied soldiers are about to land in southern France. And when they do, on D-Day, August 15th, about 100,000 soldiers land from the Allies, and their casualties are minimal. They suffer maybe 300 killed on D-Day, possibly less, just like a few hundred casualties. And the French army lands the next day behind them. And immediately, Allies are thinking about how can we quickly break out? How can we overrun as much territory as possible? And how can we capture as many German soldiers as possible? The French army, under General de Tassigny, they advance to the port cities of Marseille and Toulon, which were seen as important supply hubs, potential supply hubs for the Allies, because Eisenhower was having trouble keeping the forces in Normandy fully supplied because of limited port capacity. And the 7th Army, for its part, looked to cut off the German retreat, and the culmination of that effort happened in the Battle of Montsalimar, where the German 19th Army is given a severe mauling, and the Allies do capture tens of thousands of troops, but it's not the complete encirclement or destruction of the 19th Army as the Allies had hoped. The ground commander for that battle, General Lucien Truscott, he wanted to perform like a modern-day Battle of Cannae, reminiscent of the old Carthaginian victory over Roman forces during the Second Punic War. He used that as a model, and that's what he was envisioning as he sent troops galloping forward. But at Montelimar, there's this issue where both sides are committing forces piecemeal. The Americans, because they don't have sufficient fighting strength, a mobile kind of unit, Task Force Butler, was this light-armored, mechanized force that had been released by Patch and Truscott, and they're in and around Montelimar, attempt to cut off German forces, but due to the Germans retreating northward and the infusion of the 11th Panzer Division as a screening force, and it enables sufficient numbers of the 19th Army to escape over time to the point to where they're given a beating, but they're able to reform and further retard the progress of the Allies as they make their way northward. Putting this bizarre emulation of ancient battles to one side, it really does sound like quite a stonking victory for the Allies here. Did the Germans fight hard? Did they fight well? Or are we talking about the dregs of the German forces here, as everyone else who's highly trained has been moved up in time for the Normandy landings and D-Day? Yeah, so the composition of Army Group G really left a lot to be desired. There were, I guess, along the beachhead, contesting. The Allies on D-Day were what we would call static divisions meaning that they were only capable of fighting in place. They didn't really have sufficient training to conduct offensive maneuvers. They didn't have sufficient transportation to do so. You know, they're largely marching on foot. There were a number of Ostlegion or Eastern Battalions. And what these were were conscripted soldiers from, I guess, the occupied Nazi Empire at the time that were impressed into service. Based on my research that I've conducted at the National Archives and in planning documents, there are Lithuanians, there are Russians other Eastern Europeans that are being employed as forced soldiers to contest these landings. And as you might imagine, they're very low motivation. They're not very inspired to fight. So they surrender pretty quickly, and there isn't a lot of resistance. Because the breakout in Normandy had occurred around the same time as the operation, had Allied forces in Normandy or in central France at this point been able to sufficiently press far enough east, it would have also cut off the retreat route of Army Group G. So right about the time that the invasion happened, Hitler actually orders a retreat of Army Group G in general to the north. 
and out of southwest France as well, because Army Group G had jurisdiction down there as well, so that they could retrieve as many forces as possible. Army Group G's strength in southern France and southwestern France is about 250,000 soldiers about this time, but they're of quite low quality, and many divisions are capable of marching, limited attacks, but there isn't nowhere near the cohesive ability for large-scale operations that can actually challenge the Allies. And so as the 19th Army especially is retreating up the Rhone Valley, and there's limited maneuvering terrain because on either side it's quite hilly. It's a lot of local actions, a lot of local delaying actions, a lot of local tactical counterattacks designed to push an American company off a hill or an American battalion so that there's sufficient leeway for forces to continue to retreat. At Montelimar, there's a choke point around the small commune of La Cucourde, which is a very, it's kind of hard to describe it. You might have a hundred yards of plain out from the road, and then it, the hills dramatically increase. And towards the end of the Battle of Montelimar, allies are able to get a lot of artillery on top of the hills and just rain down shells on the retreating Germans, and it causes just this miles-long trail of destruction. There are pictures available that show the degree of destruction of carnage that is visited upon La Cucurde and, and the local roadways around it. That is quite the destructive image that you paint for us there. But one thing that strikes me about this operation is the amount of different peoples involved in this battle. We talk about the Second World War, but this operation really does strike me that there are so many different elements, different parts of the French Empire, different parts of the captured German territories during the Second World War who were being put into the front lines and facing each other. You've spoken about a few of the nations that may have comprised up the German element, but do we know exactly which parts of the French Empire were fighting on the beaches here in southern France? Yeah, there's a colonial, or I guess Algeria is considered part of the metropole at this point, but a North African colonial division and a West African colonial divisions. They're all participating. North Africans, Libyans, Tunisians are all participating, West Africans as well. And they've been seasoned in combat, both in North Africa and in Italy. So they're cream of the crop that's participating. The invasion force of Operation Dragon is probably the most veteran invasion force of any operation in the Western theater. Every division that participated had participated in months of combat in Italy, if not before in Sicily and also North Africa. So while it's important to note absolutely the French colonial empire and its participation, especially in forms of ground combat, there are large numbers of French resistance that also participated, both in southern France, around Marseille-Toulon with the French and the Americans are also heavily relying on the Maquis, the name for the rural French resistance fighter. You know, they exist in groups of 10 or 20 in the hilly parts of southern France. They work in liaison with the Special Operations Executive, the highly secretive British intelligence security force designed to disrupt and challenge Hitler at every point. Also, the Office of Strategic Services for the Americans, the forerunner to the CIA, so they've been equipping and local agents are putting together networks 
in an imperfect world, in a kind of idealized world, there would have been a general uprising of tens of thousands of Maquis who severely disrupt and challenge the Germans as they're attempting to move into place to block the invasion or to reinforce or retreat. While they certainly harass and can be problematic at times for the Germans, don't want to overstate their actual military impact. Oftentimes when they sabotage railways or attack a group, they have to flee quickly before more substantive reinforcements can arrive. Or repairs are done to the infrastructure, communications, the railways. They're up and running within a day or within a matter of hours. And so while it definitely was a psychological element, militarily the Maquis didn't necessarily have the impact they might have envisioned. However, the Americans, as they are advancing, they rely on local Maquis to provide directions. So their chief contribution, they can say like, oh, well, you know, I know of the local German commander, or I know the local SS or Gestapo officer. I know where they are, you know, we've scouted out this location or that location. And so they're pretty useful in terms of reconnaissance, navigating the foothills that can be quite disorienting as you're trying to make your way up hilly and mountainous roads, trying to cut off an enemy at a vital point. Yeah, that on-the-ground local intelligence is just absolutely vital to ensuring successful operations and safe passage through those regions. But it sounds militarily, operationally, this is a major success. And so, politically then, did this help bond the Allied leaderships together? This is a success that they all shared in? Uh, (laughs) That's a very complicated question, James. So undoubtedly, it was a major operational success that everyone was pleased that went off without a hitch. There were doubters, there were detractors, there were vocal opponents... They amazingly consisted of the British High Command, spearheaded by the British Chiefs of Staff, British Strategic Planning Committee, especially in the last couple months leading up to the operation, Winston Churchill was a vehement opponent of Operation Dragoon to the point to where he's had, he's involved in not shouting matches, but very heated debate and pleading with General Eisenhower and FDR. Until August 1st, 1944, so until two weeks before Operation Dragoon takes place, it was actually called Operation Anvil. The planning for Anvil Dragoon initially started, uh, its first inklings or seeds started in May 1943. Kind of got put on the docket of the Allied strategic planning in the late summer 1943 at the Quadrant Conference and was solidified by the Allied kind of first big three meeting of FDR, Churchill, and Stalin in Tehran, Iran, in late November, early December 1943. And it's really interesting for me to think about an Allied conference where the President of the United States, the British Prime Minister, and the Soviet Premier are meeting in modern-day Iran to hammer out Allied strategy, especially in the current political climate we live in, on the strained relations between the country of Iran and the West over the last 30, 40 years, to think that there was a time when you had the leaders of those three countries meeting there for a sustained period of time to hammer out allied strategy in World War II, I guess just reinforces the global aspect interconnectedness and the strange bedfellows wartime allies can make. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. But... They don't agree, Cameron. I'm fascinated by this. What on earth makes Churchill want to get in a shouting match with Roosevelt and Eisenhower? Yeah, so so initially, the Americans were for Anvil. There was strong backing. Eisenhower doesn't get transferred to planning for Overlord until the beginning of 1944. And so he's still in the Mediterranean helping to conduct operations in Italy up until he's transferred to England. And he, based on what he understood, at, you know, at the time, he says, we're going to need a major intervention. We're going to need another supplementary operation to complement Overlord. And he thinks that an invasion through southern France is the best way to do this. As it's presented in Tehran, Stalin, based on his experiences on the Eastern Front, let's see, 1943, so Stalingrad's been done for a year. Kursk is the major German effort that summer. It fails. And the Soviets are really beginning large-scale, deep operations, combined offensives that are beginning to push the Germans back. And he says, well, you know, we find that pincer attacks, multiple attacks from different directions, they're really working. I think that that would be a great thing to do in France as well. And I think the best way to do that is to have this invasion through southern France. Stalin argues that anything else would be strategically wasteful. Now, Churchill is rather dubious and skeptical of the Russians or the Soviets because he thinks that Stalin's really aiming for domination in the Balkans. Also, the majority of British fighting power in Europe is in Italy under the Eighth Army and Harold Alexander. And so naturally, right, you want to do everything you can to supply and support your forces to the highest degree possible. And both Churchill and some of the other higher British strategists think that Mediterranean operations in Trieste or up the Aegean, kind of in the Balkans, that's the best way forward. To the Americans, though, they see that as a complete dead end because they think, well, where's it going to go? How is this going to lead to the final defeat of Germany? The British retort is that it will draw German fighting power away from Normandy, which will then allow Overlord to be more successful. The American Joint Chiefs of Staff counter by saying that's not going to introduce additional soldiers in France that will lead directly to the final defeat of Germany. And so that's the two camps that begin to develop and emerge. 
the planning for Anvil at the time really gets sidelined, though, about six weeks after the big three agree, because they agree that Anvil will go forward. It'll be a three-division assault, and it'll happen on and around the same time as Overlord, which at the time was envisioned for May 1st. In Allied planning, they explicitly state that Anvil and Overlord were the two supreme operations of 1944. Nothing must be undertaken in Europe or in any other part of the world which will hazard the success of these two operations. So as the Soviets, the British, and the Americans are leaving Tehran, there's very much this idea that, like, okay, these are the two efforts that the Americans and the British are going to undertake. And the Soviets, for their part, agree to launch a major campaign in the summer of 1944. So that will eventually become Operation Bagration, targeted against Army Group Center. And so it's kind of those three simultaneous operations, which will hopefully break German fighting power from both fronts. But what sidetracks planning for Anvil, at least, and kind of threatens somewhat overlord plans, is the Allied invasion at Anzio, or Operation Shingle. The attempted surprise behind German lines landing that would hopefully disrupt and rupture German lines in Italy, which would allow for a rapid Allied advance and capture of Rome by February 1944. But very quickly, the Allies get stuck on the beaches of Anzio and nearly get pushed back into the sea. As a result, the Allies are required to divert large amounts of supplies and shipping that were originally earmarked for Anvil to keep the beachhead in Italy open. And the British seize this opportunity to argue that Anvil shouldn't go forward, not only because we don't have sufficient supplies now, but that success in Italy would negate the reason for Anvil to go forward entirely. Because if they break out of the foothills of Italy and into the plains before you get to the Alps, that'll essentially accomplished the objectives that Anvil was originally inflated for. And at this point, there's kind of a stalemate in terms of strategy, but Eisenhower's convinced at the end of March to cancel Anvil, not only because of the continued shipping difficulties, the beachhead at Anzio persists until May of 1944. So this is about a four or five month period where you're having to supply a beachhead with boats and planes only. There's no overland supply route. And so that cancellation not only frees up additional shipping for Overlord, but then allows the allies in the Mediterranean to focus solely on capturing Rome, which they do June 5th, 1944, so the day before the allies landing in Normandy, which is kind of takes away from Churchill's original idea, right? He wanted this big statement. It's one of the three Axis capitals to fall. So there's a big celebration on June 5th and then June 6th. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Well, we can't think about Rome anymore because we've just landed in France. But after the successful landings in France and the elimination of the Anzio beachhead, there's now sufficient shipping and landing craft available to the Allies again to go forward with another amphibious or large-scale operation. And the overall commander in the Mediterranean, the British Field Marshal Henry Jumbo Wilson, says like, hey, I've got all this shipping available. And immediately the Americans are like, hey, well, this Anvil idea we've been planning for for almost a year, we're good to go on that front. Churchill thinks it'll be a huge disaster, begins to argue vehemently against it, does everything in his power to argue against it. He suggests instead wild a landing on the western coast of France near Bordeaux because he says, well, that'll put the soldiers in a place where they can more immediately assist the allies in Normandy. However, that would require hundreds of miles of travel by boat to get to the staging area, which makes them much more vulnerable and also out of range of a lot of allied air support. From an invasion to southern France, you have the islands of Sardinia, Corsica, allied plains in Italy. You have a large naval presence that can provide substantial support. Not to mention the opening of the port city of Marseille would, again, allow another major route of allied shipping 
to go into France to help support Eisenhower and the armies up there. FDR very quickly gives the okay. George C. Marshall, chief of staff of the army, gives his okay. Eisenhower still in favor of this. Even the British chief staffs are like, all right, yes, we, we get it. It makes sense. Wilson says like, all right, but Churchill just not here for it at all. Even threatens to lay down the mantle of my high office. In a conversation he has with Eisenhower the first week of August when he's just pleading with him to not go forward with the operation. And it's not actually until four days before Dragoon takes place. So August 11th, in which Churchill finally stops arguing against the operation. He believes it'll be a failure, but he says, I'm determined to support it with all my might. So he's actually on a British warship on D-Day of Operation Dragoon, watching the landings commence. The only British participation in the operation is they provide a lot of naval craft for the operation. And there's one Allied parachuting contingent called the 1st Airborne Task Force, which is this hodgepodge of a bunch of different battalions and regiments of Allied paratroopers, one of which is British. So that's the only formal British participation in the operation. And they provide Churchill as well, of course, because he's ready to go. (laughs) Absolutely. Churchill maintains after the operation that it was a huge mistake. He's just like, oh, you know, because of Anvil Dragoon, we've just forfeited the Balkans to the Russians. And that's kind of what he argues in his post-war memoirs, you know, six volumes set. But is he right? Because we can fully understand why Eisenhower, Roosevelt... They're focusing on the war they're fighting, and they're focusing on making sure they can obtain victory. But is Churchill, a great statesman, wartime leader, already looking to the next war, the Cold War, and the fight that's to come? Sure. You can certainly say that Churchill's prescient about a lot of things. The issues that emerge in the immediate aftermath of the war with near-communist takeovers in Greece and Turkey and the civil wars that break up there, Yugoslavia falling under Tito... While he's certainly arguing for blunting Soviet advance, I don't know how practical it would have been. An excursion into the Balkans is going to be logistically more difficult than one into southern France. The terrain is even worse in the Balkans for fighting than it is in southern France. And I'm sure Churchill is still mired by things that happened before the German invasion of the Soviet Union, right? The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact essentially made the Soviet Union and Germany allies. And there were talks of our France and Great Britain going to declare war on the Soviet Union in 1940s. Having that three, four years removed, there's justifiably a lot of skepticism towards the Soviet post-war plans. In terms of politically speaking, Operation Anvil Dragoon had its own political merits, particularly as they related to the French. So in the liberation of France, in Normandy, really you have one French armored division out of all the units that are participating. You have the Maquis or the French resistance, but there's still hundreds of thousands of German troops there suppressing them. And so the best way to get French fighting power into France is through southern France at this time. And so putting an entire French army on French soil to actively liberate French territory is very much a point of pride that both the French point to. And de Gaulle is quite insistent this entire time, like, we must have active French participation in the liberation of France. Not just through a symbolic gesture through Leclerc's armored division liberating Paris, but, you know, real French fighting power. And the first French army is able to provide that. And in planning, the Americans and the British are going back and forth leading up to the operation. They say failure to go forward with Anvil will lead to political difficulties with the French. Because as forcefully as Churchill argues, de Gaulle is every bit as obstinate and as stubborn 
<laughs> leader as well. And so you have to also take that into consideration when contemplating the merits of the operation. And so while Churchill wants to say, you know, I'm a prophet, I prophesized all these difficulties we're in now, because, you know, memoirs as they're written are written as much for the present as they are for the past. So it very much benefited Churchill to say, you know, I had doubts about Anvil because I said it would mean the Soviets would have more influence in. Look at us five years later with the Iron Curtain. The Soviets have the bomb now and it provides a very easy narrative, as is the case more often than not in historical events. It's a bit more complicated than that. Cameron, thank you so much. Your ability to connect these small dots and the big political events of the time is astonishing and paints not only an unrivaled picture of the broader landscape of the war, but also helps us understand why Operation Dragoon was so important. Where can people read more of your work? Sure. Thanks, James. I have a New York Times article in which I discuss a bit about the British and American difficulties surrounding Anvil Dragoon. I also have an article on War on the Rocks, which is more of a long-form discussion of this debate around the operation. In addition, I also have an article on the U.S. National World War II Museum detailing some of the difficulties. I'm also currently writing a chapter for an edited collection coming out of the University of Kansas Press, in which I will be discussing French mobilization in the city of Mont-Solimar during the Phony War. So from the declaration of war in September 1939 to the beginning of the Battle of France in May 1940. So yeah, I'm finishing up the last edits of my dissertation, and I'll be (laughs) hopefully defending here within the next month, and then that'll be available for people more interested in reading about French civilian life in southern France during the war. Cameron, thank you so much. Good luck with the dissertation, and we look forward to getting you back on the show soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, James, and thanks for the opportunity. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.